I'd like to invite you at this point in our worship service to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll begin our scripture reading at chapter 22, verse 39. We'll read 39 through 46, which will be our passage of focus this evening. And we're going to read God's Word under the heading of the cup and the cross. The cup and the cross from Luke 22. And then we'll turn to Luke 23 and we'll read the crucifixion narrative. First, we'll give our attention to chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. Let's give our attention to God's Word. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more, even earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then we'll turn one page over to the crucifixion narrative, beginning in verse 26, chapter 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say in the mount, to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. For if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, 
Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in the stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come from, uh, with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how this body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. May his blessing be upon it. Dear congregation, There is no one here sufficiently experienced in agony. There is none who have so suffered in this life so that we could understand the agony of what Christ endured. There was an ancient Greek liturgy that described what happened to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they called it thine unknown sufferings. That is that in the inner chambers of our grief, we cannot comprehend what Christ endured. It is shut out to human knowledge. Charles Spurgeon described it like this, He endured in the place of the olive press, crushed beneath the upper and the nether millstone of mental suffering and hellish malice. It is here in Gethsemane. It is there upon the cross where Christ becomes unto us the unspeakable gift Because not only does He bear the physical pain of the cross, but the depth of His agony consists in that He bore the wrath of God. We can hardly conceptualize this. The Scriptures describe God's judgment as horrific. James says, in judgment, there is no mercy. That God's judgment will seek and find sinners. 
Not one sin will escape His judgment and those who are subject to God's judgment will be utterly and totally consumed. If you believe the Bible this evening, we should be recoiling in horror at the description of God's judgment. Not because it scares us, not because we are afraid of it, but because Christ, the innocent one, the one of whom, when he's walking on the banks of the Jordan River, John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God, without blemish, without error, takes upon himself our judgment. I ask this evening, is there anything more profound than this? Is there anything more worthy of the Christian's contemplation? Is there anything more worthy of our affections that Christ bore God's wrath for you and for me and for all who would ever believe. You know, sometimes on Good Friday, there's a temptation to focus only on Jesus' physical sufferings. As if the nails and the whips and the crucifix saved you. Yet many men have been crucified, but not a single one atoned for one single sin. What I want to suggest to us this evening is that we have not been saved by the whips or by any of the brutalities that Christ endured on that day, but we are saved because Christ bore God's wrath for us. The sinless One has stood before God in our place. He was crushed for the sake of our sins. This is what Jesus is praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll see this in our theme this evening, which is in your bulletin. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath down to the dregs for me, for the church. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath down to the dregs for me. And I want to show you that in three headings. The purpose of prayer, the Father's answer to Christ's prayer, and the Son's anguish. That's the purpose of prayer, the Father's answer, and the Son's anguish. You know, it says in verse 39 that Christ went out to the Garden of Gethsemane as was His custom. This garden was the place where Jesus loved to be during His earthly life. We believe that He had a secret spot on the Mount of Olives where He would often go to pray and to spend time with His disciples. What we uh, other commentators, and I think they're right, suggest is that Jesus would have went there actually every night after He had, done, had been done teaching in the city of Jerusalem. He would then go up the Mount of Olives and then He would spend ta- quiet time with His disciples where there would be 
teaching, instruction, prayer, psalm singing. This would have been a place of respite amongst the the busyness of the city. A place, a sweet place of joy and relaxation. We notice immediately in verse 39, Luke says he did it as was his custom. That is, that he regularly went there. And at this time, Judas has already left the disciples. There's only 11 there. He has paid, or been paid to deliver Christ over to the rulers to put Him to death. But yet Christ still goes to His regular place of prayer. He is not hiding from Judas. He is not seeking to avoid death. In His last moments, He chooses to seek His Father in prayer. But this place that was so often associated with joy, so often associated with rest and peace, is now marked with deep sadness. Remember that the Lord had told the disciples, this is what's going to happen to Me in Jerusalem. And we can imagine that as He's ascending that little hill that overlooks Jerusalem, His soul would have been so burdened and pressed down. And so He bids His disciples in verse 40 to pray. Pray that you not enter into temptation. That word temptation, we often think is speaking of sin, right? The allure and the draw of sin. But here it means to be something more like a time of pressing. A time of testing that is dangerous. Jesus is saying there's danger ahead. There's going to be a time of trial and temptation. You need to be watchful. You need to pray. Jesus knew that after He was crucified and killed, the the leaders of the Sanhedrin would not have been satisfied with just having killed the leader, but then would seek out the disciples. No, each of them were to be hunted down after Christ was killed. Some would even be put to death themselves and tempted to disown their leader. He bids them to pray. We also see though that in Christ's warning of the disciples of the temptation to come, in a sense, He's also telling them of His temptation to come. He too is going to be bared down upon. Men are hunting Him. They will put Him to death. And if He would just stop following His Father's will, if He would just run off to some other place, or He could command the legions of angels to come down and vanquish them, He could avoid the cross. You see, when Christ bid them to pray, it's doubtless that He's also asking them to pray for Him. That He would endure. That He would do what the Father has called Him to do. If we jump all the way down to verse 45 and 46, we see that the disciples failed in their call to prayer. Judas had already left to betray Him. Peter would soon deny Him. The rest would run away. And instead of watching and praying, they leave Jesus alone. And as we turn to Christ's prayer, 
what we need to see is that the disciples are not able to help in their salvation. The disciples were not able to accomplish what Christ had been called to accomplish. They would not be able to do what Christ has to do. When it comes to our salvation, Jesus alone will struggle. He alone will endure the temptation and become victorious. Let's give our attention to that. We see that in verse 41, Christ goes about two or three yards and He prays. In verse 42, Luke says that He kneels. But Mark elaborates and says that eventually in His time of prayer, He falls to the ground. He says that in chapter 14, verse 35. Matthew says in verses, chapter 26, verse 29 that He falls on His face. And He prays in verse 42 of Luke 22. Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Here we see the depth of Christ's heart. And we will never be able to understand the anguish that He endured in that moment. Remember, as we, if we read through the Gospel of Luke, we see that Christ was always, His life was always consistent with His life was always highlighted by union and communion with God the Father. And in this moment, it is as if Christ is looking God the Father in the eyes. The One He has walked with so closely all 33 years of His life. And instead of seeing in the eyes of God the love and the communion and the union that has so upheld Him all of His days, He looks into the eyes of the Father and John Calvin says what He sees is the dreadful tribunal of God. He sees the judge has armed Himself with inconceivable vengeance. And because of our sins, And the load which was laid upon Him, it began to press Him down. See, what's happening here, Christ is praying, God, let me not be separated from You. Let me not be taken from this communion and this union that has so vivified and strengthened me and given me life. He was for the first time going to be separated from God. He was, his relationship with the Father was to be shattered with the weight of sins. The Gospel writer Matthew says he fell on his face and prayed. His grief about what will happen upon the cross brings him to the ground. We know this as well, that there is no more a humiliating state before God than when we fall prostrate and lay on our faces. Have you ever experienced that? When you're so wholly dependent, so crying out to God that you would lay on your face in the floor 
for the Lord. Have you done that? There's nothing more humiliating. By this gesture, Christ shows His absolute honesty and surrender as He faces the greatest temptation of His life. At this moment, He is facing the accumulation of His life. This is the purpose of His life. This is why He came. This was His life's mission. Now at the summit, the question is, will He endure this great temptation? This pressure? This trial? You know, this Good Friday evening, I want you to think back on Christ's life for a moment. And ask yourselves in all of the situations that Christ found Himself in life, where He calmed the stormy seas, where His friend John the Baptist was beheaded, the Pharisees threatened His life, the leper, or the demoniacs and the lepers and everyone else. He raised the dead and cast out demons. Have we ever once seen the Lord afraid? Did he ever tremble with fear? You see, in the Gospel of Luke, he has never been scared until now. This man, Jesus Christ, if you read throughout the whole of the Bible, he is described, he's been given many terms. He's been described as the God man himself, the Messiah, the Lion of Judah the King of kings, the Lord of lords, but as we go into the garden and as we peer into His prayer life, He is weeping and crying out. Asking in prayer, Father, remove this cup. I want to put the question to you this evening. What was in the cup? What was in the cup that can so scare a lion? That can humble a king? That could cause your Messiah to tremble? In the Old Testament, cup is a symbol of God's wrath. To those who are given the cup of God's wrath, it is said they lose all remnants of human dignity. They stagger and fall unconscious in the streets. Isaiah 51. They are exposed and disgraced. Hebrews 2, verse 16. They go mad. Jeremiah 51, 7. And the world looks upon them with scorn. Brothers and sisters, what was in the cup? But the wrath of Almighty God is in the cup. The punishment for our sins is in the cup. The death of every man is in the cup. The cross is what's in the cup. The chalice that we deserved 
It is because of you and I, our sins, the Lord of glory trembles with fear. Our sins made Him weep. Our punishment grieved Him to the point of death. What we deserve, brothers and sisters, we deserve to drink the cup. But God in His mercy gives it to Christ. Not only this, but allow me to quote a sermon, quote myself from many years ago. Not only this, Did He bear our judgment, but yet there is still more torment for Him. God cannot take a man and punish him for something something someone else has done, but He must punish the sinner. He must take our sins. He becomes the sinner. You see, in the garden, the Lord of glory, the Prince of heaven, who is all beauty, who is our King, who is our Lord, is asking the Father if there is another way to save the church than bearing the punishment for sins. He never doubts the Father's plan. He does whisper, nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. This is the purpose of prayer. Not to request something different from the Father, but to request from the Father that we would be given the strength for what He's called us to. Look at the Father's answer in verse 43. That's our second point this evening. The Father's answer. And there would appear to Him an angel from heaven strengthening Him. You see, it would be wrong for us this Good Friday evening to assume that this trial that Christ needed to endure upon the cross was easier for Him because He was the God-man. No, the reason we commemorate Good Friday is to remember Jesus' suffering. He was a man who felt the physical weakness he felt the physical anguish, or the mental anguish, I should say, and the emotional turmoil that all of us have experienced. You see, when Christ says in verse 42, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me, He's not second-guessing the will of God, but when He saw the wrath of God exhibited to Him, He begins to shrink back with horror from what God will do. But because God the Father loves the Son and knows that the Son will overcome sin, death, and hell, He sends Jesus help. Luke records, an angel from heaven appeared to strengthen Him. You see, throughout the biblical history, angels have been used by God the Father to provide guidance and help and encouragement to God's people. They're often referred to in the Scriptures as ministering angels. They, were to, they would have come to earth to help God's people walk according to God's will. And here it is as if God has reached down into the Mount of Olives to help His Son walk according to His will. 
Consider this for a moment. That as Christ is praying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. At the appearance of the angel, what does that say to Christ? Not that he is going to skip this trial, but it is the appearance of the angel to strengthen him is God's word to Christ that you will not be delivered from your suffering. The angel strengthened him to go to the cross. God the Father heard Christ's prayer and it is as if He said, I will not remove this cup from you, but I will be with you in this hour of darkness. Psalm 75 describes the cup of God's judgment like this. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out or pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Verse eight. You see, at the cross, the Father, by sending this angel, is saying, The sins of the church will be put on your shoulders, even though you are perfect, even though you have never been seen as sinning, even though never for one moment. He didn't love the Lord your God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself, even though he is all of these things. God has said unto him, you will be reckoned. You will be treated as the wicked. Christ will take the chalice of God's wrath and drink every drop down to the dregs. One of the aspects of this passage that strikes me so deeply is look at verse 44. I want to show us the son's anguish. It says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly Think about this. God has said to him, I'm going to pour out my wrath upon you. You are going to receive the judgment for sins from my hand. And he goes closer to the Father. He draws nearer to the source of God's judgment. Describing that the thought of being a sinner, being separated from the Father, causes him extreme mental and physical suffering. It says, in agony, he prayed more earnestly. This is a word that means he's striving bitterly. There's a fierce conflict within him. But he didn't just experience an outward pain. No, it was a fight within his soul. It's in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark where it says, He was exceedingly sorrowful. And he trembled. He received deep wounds in his soul. One of the great American theologians, B.B. Warfield, says it this way. He says, In the supreme moments, 
In these supreme moments, our Lord sounded the ultimate depth of human anguish. The scope of His sufferings was very broad, embracing the whole series of painful emotions which runs from consternation that is appalled dismay through a despondency which leads or despondency which is almost despair, to a sense well nigh of complete desolation. In the presence of this mental anguish, the physical tortures of the crucifixion retire to the background, and we may well believe, though He, Christ, died on the cross, He did not die of the cross. He died of a broken heart. That is the strain of His mental anguish. And suffering. He suffered in soul. Being separated from God the Father. Being made to be the soul that sins. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, He endures hell on the cross. Not only that, but He's in agony in body. He was so distressed over the state of His soul, He begins to, it seems, Sweat out of his pores, blood. Think of a man so broken, he begins to bleed all over his body. Top to bottom, head to toe, tears mixed with blood, lying on the ground. Yet still, he whispers. Your will be done. Your will be done. One of the reasons I picked hymn number 344, because it said in stanza 2, Emmanuel wrestles lone with fear. What we need to see this evening is that Jesus in Gethsemane did not want to die. He did not want to drink the cup. What makes Good Friday profound is not that Jesus faced death without fear. He was terrified of the wrath of God. But He endured the terror of God's wrath for the sake of the church terrified by what he knew, terrified by what he did not know, but as Philip Ryken says, he took damnation lovingly. I want us to notice one more thing this evening in Gethsemane. It says in verse 45, and when he rose from prayer. I don't think I'm exaggerating here when I say that apart from the resurrection narrative, this might be one of the most glorious verses in the Gospel of Luke. He rises to his feet after willingly accepting the judgment for sins Imagine the sight this evening, covered top to bottom in blood, dirty having prayed with his 
face upon the ground, tears stained, or cheeks stained with tears, and here he stands, triumphant, having agreed to take the cup, to take God's wrath for us. While the disciples, verse 45, are sleeping for sorrow. We, brothers and sisters, are the disciples in this story, aren't we? We're sleeping, but Christ is standing. He is standing gloriously. Standing as the Lamb who will be slain for our sins. Standing as the One who will bear God's holy wrath. Standing as the One who will win victory over Satan and evil. He stands for you. And you can imagine as Christ is laying there on the ground in the Mount of Olives, as He stands, heaven erupts with praise. We cry out to glory in the strength of this mighty Savior. That even though the disciples slept because of the sorrow in their heart, Christ prayed and endured. And there is the point of the message of Good Friday. Jesus knew the trials that were ahead. It says in Ephesians 1 and 2 that they were decreed before the foundations of the world were laid. He knew that the nails, he knew of the cross and the crown of thorns, yet he still goes for us. As many of you know, because I've preached here, I think 19 times now or something like that. After each point in a sermon, I try to give some practical applications as to how you can live this out in your Christian life. But on Good Friday, there's only one application. Jesus loves you, dear Christian, more than you could ever imagine. The cross was a torture device designed to make the worst pain imaginable. But the heart of Jesus' suffering is He died a horrible, God-forsaken, damnable death. The sins would be laid upon Him. And He would cry out upon that cross from Psalm 22 as we read earlier, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for His people. He did it for our salvation. He did it. He drank the cup that we deserve. So what's the application? Brothers and sisters, today is the day of salvation. Turn from your wicked ways and repent. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him for His mercy and His grace. In Him there is plentiful redemption. Not because God looks the other way to our sinfulness. Not because God sweeps our 
unrighteousness under the rug, but because Christ bore our punishment. There is life for us. There is redemption for us in His cross. And in the wrath that He endured there for our sake. Repent! Come and find life today. Christ died and bore God's wrath to save sinners whom He loves. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we will never be able to know the depths of Christ's suffering. Yet, Father, we see but a glimpse of this in Luke's Gospel. We pray, Father, that we would heed Your call this Good Friday evening. That He died because He loves us. Yes, may we sorrow over our sins, but may we also be people of rejoicing. Rejoicing and knowing that the Savior died. But Sunday is coming. And that by the power that was His, He was risen from the dead. And that our sins have been forgiven. That righteousness is ours. That heaven is our home because of His work. Lord, soften our hearts. May we know the depth of His suffering, the depth of Your love, the depth of Your mercy. We pray, God, even this evening that You would draw lost sinners unto Yourself. Help us, Lord. For we are not able in and of ourselves. For we, like the disciples, are sleeping in the garden. But we know that our Savior has lived, died, and now ever lives to pray and intercede for His people. We ask God that You would do all of these things, not because of us, but for Your glory. Amen.